Zach. Hello. Hello, Zach. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for being with us. So let's get started. Uh, Marshall, people have been waiting uh, for Zach to be with us. So you on uh, the next hour. Oh, they've been waiting for Zach. I guarantee, not for me. How you doing, brother? You doing all right? I'm doing good. How about yourself? I'm decidedly well. I've got our cats sleeping next to me. They've yet to make a Zoom appearance, but they usually <laughs> do. So if you see a tail wandering across this virtual background, don't be surprised. Thanks. <laughs> good. Thanks for taking some time here, Zach, with the uh, Racer Nepar Trade Race Industry Week 2021. Man, we can talk about a lot of things. I figured let's start like we did yesterday with your friend, Michael Andretti. We're going to talk about F1, IndyCar, all kinds of great things. I want to start with Zach Brown, the driver, though. Uh, our late friend Robin Miller tells a story of remembering hearing about the Zach Attack program uh, in and around Indianapolis. And it was some sort of kind of promotional package back when you were a young driver wanting to get to IndyCar, Formula One, for folks who only know you as the Just Marketing Executive or the McLaren Racing CEO. Let's tell folks about Zach Brown, aspiring race car driver. I've seen you race, you were good. Where did this, this career of yours start in open wheel? Um, well, it wasn't good enough, unfortunately, but <laughs> it's, worked out, uh, it's worked out okay. Um, I uh, used to go uh, you know, from Los Angeles. My uh, parents, my first ever race was the uh, Long Beach Grand Prix in 1981, and I was 10 years old, and my family wasn't into racing, and weren't, I wouldn't even say they were race fans, it was a bit more of a, the races in town, and um, it made a huge impression on me, I remember it like it was yesterday, Alan Jones won, I remember meeting Eddie Cheever, I still have the race program, wow. and uh, that kind of got me into the whole Hot Wheels, Big Wheels thing. And then uh, my dad would take me and my brother to Riverside and I'd see the, uh, what was it? The Warner Hodgson 400, 400, the Winston something 500 would go to the IMSA Camel GT races. Yes. That was kind of like 83, 84, 85. And then we'd also go to the drag races. So I'd go to like three, four races a year. Tony Nancy, the uh, drag racer. He had his shop was walking distance from my house. So I used to walk to that every day. <clears throat> so that's kind of what made an impression on me. And then when I went to high school, um, my buddy's family was into racing. We went to the Long Beach Grand Prix in 87, which uh, Mario won. Roberto Guerrero uh, almost got it on pole. I was kind of a Roberto Guerrero fan. And of course, that's Mario. A deep that's a deep cut on the Guerrero call. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm sad when he didn't win Indy, you know, when he could have, should have, would have, um, when he had his issue in the pits. And I had been on Wheel of Fortune, um, a strange thing, Teen Week, and won a bunch, <laughs> of, bunch of his and her watches. And so I went to the Long Beach Grand Prix, met Mario in, in this group, asked him, how do you get started? He said, carts. There was a Jim Hall cart racing ad in the racing program. I went, sold my watches at a pawn shop, went and bought a go-kart, and that's how it all got started. That is so insane. So 
before we get into today's racing and what you're doing today, I want to stick with this for one more moment about your past because it does link to the future. So for those who go up what we would call today the road to Indy, don't necessarily make it to the top. And you also went uh, abroad and raced abroad as well in open wheel, but team owner, team principal, something along those lines, driver coach, driver manager, those are some of the careers that follow for those who don't make it all the way. You obviously understood the art of business, marketing, promotions. Tell us about how the racing side of what you did and having to find those to support you, knowing that your family wasn't just bankrolling this like, like so many young kids have. Tell us about that education as a driver, because clearly you turned that into something that has propelled you in life very far forward. It was really um, because I didn't have family resources. It was something I, I just needed to do for survival and to go uh, motor racing. So uh, when I get into something, I'm kind of all in or not interested. I mean, I had such a passion and desire to race. It was a sponsorship thing I needed to do. And um, I, I learned it by just getting totally immersed in it and figuring out what do I need to do for a sponsor to write me a check so I could go do what I want to do? So I think I learned early on, you know, you're, you're never going to sell someone something. You're going to create an opportunity where they want to buy something. So TWA, the airline, um, which I hopefully don't have any responsibility for them going out of business since half the <laughs> other business, uh, was my uh, first sponsor that, that came from, uh, my mom, knowing uh, someone, she's in the travel business, uh, at TWA in Los Angeles, started giving me airline tickets, which I would then bundle in sponsor deals. So it was, you know, give me 50 grand and not only will I put your logo on my car and hospitality, but I'll give you 50 grand in airline tickets. So it was a real tangible kind of return for people. So that's how it all got started. Um you know, they used to sponsor the Long Beach uh, Grand Prix. So there were times I was a little bit competitive with Long Beach because we were sharing the same sponsor. And then uh, I was able to um, wrestle one away from uh, Sir Jackie Stewart uh, in, in England, a company called Spring Ram, uh, who I met at a driving school. I'd actually driven the CEO uh, around a gentleman named Rob Hassel. And um, that then kind of woke everyone up of, wait a minute, this guy's coming over and Got one from Jackie Stewart. No one, no one, no one grabs a sponsor from from Sir Jackie, yes. and so that's how it all all got started. And then I got a deal to race uh, back in in the states, and I went to TWA and said I'm going to move back to the states and race. And they said it's all working really well. Can't you place your sponsorship with someone in motor racing? You must know all the guys and gals up and down pit lane. And that's how the business got started. I went, yeah, I could do that, and did my. Uh, first deal with Nigel Mansell's Formula 3000 team, uh, which was a funny story because it was, I think it was about 300 grand. And um, Nigel had just won the world championship. So I was quite intimidated to meet him. And I needed to get one more personal appearance out of him. And uh, he wouldn't do it. And I said to him, I said, well, uh, you know, what do you charge for an appearance? And he went, 100 grand. Went, Jeez, you must not get many of those. And he went, I don't need many of those. It was such a yeah. great <laughs> <laughs> That's a very Nigel. Yeah. <laughs> you want to talk about, he was, 
member number one of the Nigel Mansell fan club, uh, Nigel yeah, Mansell it, himself. He, he, he was definitely a, a legend, not only to all of us, but in his own mind, but he, he earned it. He was, and he was spectacular to watch race. And I think he did wonders for IndyCar when he came over. I love it. Well, let's dive into some of the, uh, the current stuff, Zach. So I would not term it as a dumpster fire. I'd maybe call it a, uh, a trash bin blaze. You step in, you are hired to lead McLaren Racing and Formula One program out of some dark times, non-competitive times. I'm not just throwing platitudes at you here, but <clears throat> in a relatively short period of time, McLaren Racing has gone from being a joke in the paddock, an afterthought, to a serious contender, not necessarily world championship status yet, getting back to winning titles, but it wouldn't be uh, out of turn to say it's something you're aspiring towards and inching towards. Tell us about this journey so far, Zach, of getting McLaren out of where it was to where you are now and where you think you might be able to get 2023, 2024. And we'll talk about the new regulations and whatnot a little bit later, but give us an update on this, this progress you're making. Yeah, it was, um, it was brutal when I, I started. Um, I definitely, you know, we were improving, not a lot, but as a team, I wasn't expecting, nor was anybody expecting us to go backwards the, uh, you know, the first year I, I joined. Um, and, you know, it was shocking that a team that's been uh, so dominant and a legendary team um, had fallen as hard as it had fallen. I think being such a big team, um, your fans understandably get pretty angry because your expectations are or up here so it's kind of like any major sport when the big team doesn't do well they get more booze than the small team that doesn't do well because that's kind of maybe what you expect so sure. uh that came in I, you know i look at you know how did we get there um and i think you can start to trace it back to early last decade where you're building a road car company you have a lot of infighting that's been well documented you know ron in ron out with marsh in with marsh out ron in capito in but you know it's just any racing team or or even just business if you have a bit of a revolving door to a door and problems at the board level that trickles down throughout throughout the organization and that that's what had happened was it didn't have you know singularly you know adult supervision too much stuff going on Blend that with the, you know, engine program was not competitive when it got started. It's a great engine now. Uh, understandable um, that it takes time for these things to develop. Have that, combine that with clearly we didn't have our act together. You put the two of them together, you can see how you, you slide to ninth in the championship. And um, so when I, I started um, of my six leadership team, one um, was here then, uh, my CFO, Laura, but I'd actually promoted her. And I didn't come in going, right, I'm going to clean house. I, I kind of came in going, because it was quite intimidating coming into McLaren. There's kind of 900 of them and one of me. 
and uh, I'd never run a racing team before. And so I, I gave everyone a, a, a chance. So I didn't kind of come in thinking I'm going to change this. It was let me understand. And it became apparent to me pretty quickly that changes needed to be, be made. And so started going and doing that, you know, pretty, pretty aggressively. I didn't change a lot of people, just changed the right people, tried to change the culture. I kind of use this Star Wars uh, analogy, not necessarily a big Star Wars guy, but kind of makes sense that, you, you know, you look at our facility and our team, we got kind of that Star Wars feel to us, but we became Darth Vader and I wanted us to become Luke Skywalker. So I went from, you know, changing the colors from a dark and gray team to, you know, bring back the papaya to, you know, look, don't touch to actually, hey, come play with us and, and try to get the uh, culture to, to open up. Uh, I did a lot of what we called Ask Zach sessions where I sat down for a breakfast with 20 people at a time throughout the entire organization to just talk to me. So I tried to get as much information as possible. And there was a breakdown in trust. Clearly, there was an enormous amount of competence there of a 900 people, 700 of them have won championships and in, in races. So it was about just providing uh, direction. And uh, so what about doing that? And, you know, started to, once you kind of turn the boat and um, got us really focused again. Now it feels like it's gone pretty quick, but the first couple of years were really painful, but I always had total shareholder support their racers, they understood the business. So I never felt um, like I didn't have the runway or the resources or the ability to do what I felt I needed to do to get us back on track. I always assumed that with your extensive background with just marketing and all the sponsorship B2B deals that you created, as an individual, you sat in enough brutal boardroom type situations, whether it was making a pitch or trying to salvage something where a long-term partner wanted to leave, whatever it might be. I always figured you sat in enough brutally uh, crushing pressure pack situations to where, although you had no experience running a racing team, too many commonalities with your previous experience so that not be applicable to what you had to do at McLaren Let's stay here for one more second, Zach. So you have the incomparable Andreas Seidel, who's part of your team. He's anywhere he's gone, success has reigned. You have other fantastic people, a part of today's Formula One program. Even though you have great staff and great drivers and great everything, tell folks about how you've made this great leap, as you mentioned, from P9 in the Constructors' Championship to being in regular contention for podiums or similar but this is actually where things get the hardest. Like where you are right now, you go, great, we're here. The fight to get out of this spot to getting those regular wins, vying for a title, that's actually the toughest thing uh, you have to now achieve. Yeah, I think, you know, first of all, it's all, it's all people. Um, coming back to, to my leadership team, and Andreas has done an awesome job. We have a fantastic relationship. I think my job as CEO is to get the right people in the right places, um, give them the right resources, um, don't micromanage, um, and, and, and kind of help get everyone rowing the same, uh, same direction. So it's, you know, 
I can maybe take a little bit of credit for getting the right people, but they should take all the credit for actually making it happen. They've got the harder part. Um, and, you know, we're having a, a, a lot of fun. I think that's something with our drivers, Lando and, and Daniel, but you're exactly right. I think, you know, here we are sitting fourth in the championship. And I think uh, if we're real with ourselves, it's going to take a small miracle to finish third. Um, <laughs> there's the cat. There's um, Rosie. There, there's the cat. Um, but, you know, here we, we've won our first race in a decade, pole, led a couple races, more podiums, the only one, two of the year so far, which is pretty surprising um, that we're the only team to have done that. Um, but yet we're fourth in the championship, and that almost feels like we've gone backwards, where when we set out all our objectives, we're to get closer to the front of the field, and we've, we've done that. But I think, you know, it shows how competitive the sport is, and I think now is, is the hard part. Um, and also with the, with the budget cap coming in, you know, while we're looking fully in front of us, there's some tough teams behind us that uh, are not far off. So I think the championship now um, with the budget cap and the regulations, I hope and think it will become more like IndyCar results where, you know, you show up to Long Beach next year, you're going to pick maybe 10 drivers that can win it. Not, mm. None of those 10, you'd be surprised if anyone right now it's kind of two or three, maybe yeah. five. So I think it's going to double its competitiveness, which means hopefully the days of, you know, one driver winning 12 races are going to be behind us and you're going to have four or five people going for the championship that have all won two or three or four races. And therefore it's going to be more competitive because in that scenario, you know, it's like when you look at the IndyCar standings, it's surprising how good some of the drivers are that finished eighth, ninth, 10th in the championship. Um, and that just shows how competitive it is. So I think that's what the future of Formula One has in front of it. Let's stay with Formula One for a little while, Zach, do a little bit of a, a deeper dive, get some of your thoughts Let's talk about the current state of Formula One and its health. And let's also talk about its current state of growth. Where is Formula One at? As, and I know you, all, despite, let's say, recently joining McLaren, you've been tracking Formula One for most of your life. But where is it today in terms of health and growth? Where are the areas that Zach Brown, if he was asked by F1's leadership, would say, these are, are some fixes or improvements still need to be done. Um, so I think the sport's never been healthier. If you look at the, and it's amazing and a lot of credit, uh, most of the credit to, to Liberty. So it wasn't long ago that you always had two or three teams going bust. Yeah. And then you could buy a team out of administration. Now you have 10 teams that are all, very well uh, financed by very successful groups and or individuals, none of which want to sell. Um, you know, Michael, who, you know, I'm very close to, that was a very real deal. Michael and, Andretti. And Michael Andretti and real money. And the seller ultimately ended up not wanting to sell. 
that same team was bought out of bankruptcy or on the verge of bankruptcy two, three years ago. So I think from a health of the grid, I've never seen in the 30 years I've been following Formula One in the kind of 15 I've been in the business of Formula One, I've never seen all 10 teams so strong, which mm. is awesome. And that's going to push up franchise value and, you know, success breeds success. Then you go to, to countries we, that want to host Grand Prix. We kind of have a problem now. We have more people that want to have Grand Prix than I think we can put on. I, I'd advocate, uh, which I've been vocal about, I'd like to maybe see us go to 20 races but service 28 markets and maybe 15 or fixed races or 16, pick a number and, um, you know, 10 rotate every other, uh, every other year. And so there's another cat, um, cats everywhere. (laughs) Um, and, and, um, so we've never had more demand for Grand Prix. I think we're going to get to the point where, we're going to have to walk from some Grand Prix, not Grand Prix walking from us. Then you look at Austin, that audience was unbelievable. Brazil was a huge race. Um, You're having record attendance. Uh, Netflix has been spectacular for the sport. Um, Corporate partnerships, we've been ringing the bell uh, often with, with great, great brands, Formula One. If you start looking around the track, they've got more brands. So sponsorship is very healthy. So when you have healthy teams, healthy Grand Prix, great TV ratings, great side programming, digitals through the roof, great sponsors, great racing, I'm extremely bullish. And three, four years ago, I couldn't have said, I would have said, oh, there's a couple of teams on the verge of going bust. We were in trouble, um, you know, having a hard time you know, getting these Grand Prix to be funded, you know, the racing's not that excited and, and that's turned around 180 degrees. And I think we're just getting started. Let's talk about very recent item. And that seems to be hyper, hyper focus, uh, drama, uh, real housewives of formula one, almost in terms of lap 48 in Sao Paulo and Michael Massey and, race directors did max do this did lewis do that christian horner aka karen horner going up against uh toto wolf aka karen wolf back and forth non-stop every day i will admit i appreciate your style brown you're not you're not getting involved in all this muck and grime but drama seemingly a daily thing spilling into worldwide news with formula one good thing bad thing it's supposed to be the pinnacle the pure best formula one in the world you name it man this feels like some reality tv programming of late is that a good thing is it a bad thing what do you think um that's a good question i think there's a it, it depends kind of what lens you're looking through from uh, the fans and drawing attention and drama it's it's probably a a good thing um, because it is drama. Uh, personally, uh, knowing all the characters, I'd be a little embarrassed um, with some of the uh, behaviors. And I do think some of it is turned on for the cameras. Um, 
not 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 how I would do it. I think the sport is exciting enough and theatrical enough and the personalities are exciting enough that I don't think you need to kind of turn up the volume because the camera is around you. But some of the people in the sport, um, I think, can't help them themselves. Um, so I think it's kind of hard to say whether that's good or bad. I, I you know, in the pit lane where we all know each other, it's a bit. I'd be a bit embarrassed personally to um, uh, kind of go to reality TV when this is meant to be racing, but I'm not sure it's not great television from a fan's point of view. I do think we need to get on top of these uh, penalties. I think um, the, and, and the teams quite frankly are to blame for this, right? The FIA has to, execute the rules the teams are the ones that vote on the rules push for the rules so you know i i feel like the on-track action now is is kind of over-regulated but it's the teams that have caused created the regulation and it's uh inconsistent at, at times you have uh max who uh takes he and lewis off the track in brazil no penalty. Perez tries to go around the outside of Lando on lap one. So I think there's always been a little bit of a let him race on lap one. They don't touch. He, Perez runs off the track. Not only does Lando get a penalty, he gets two penalty points. Ooh. So, you know, then you get into, I think it was, and I could go on for hours, Russell and Signs touched in Silverstone and Russell got a penalty that actually touched but got one point. And so what I don't like to see are races and hopefully a championship decided on uh, these, these grounds. And, you know, Nicky Lauda was always great. He was, you know, let them race, they'll sort it out themselves. So I think we got to take a step back. Uh, drivers will sort this stuff out themselves on track, you know, um, I know safety clearly, understandably, is a big concern, but the drivers know where their own limits are. And we didn't have these five-second penalties and you ran him or her off the road for 65 years and everything seemed yeah. to be just fine. So that, that I think we need to get on top of. And then also uh, how late it becomes where you find out about the penalty. So the last one that we had in Qatar, you know, you find out an hour before the race, but it happened the day before. It certainly seems like that should be a 15, 20 minute discussion. So uh, it, it's a tricky one, but it feels to me like it needs to be fixed because uh, uh, it's, it's too much now. There's too many penalties too often. Total agreement there. I'd say that's one great evolution if we're looking into moving into the off season and what Formula One might consider, whether it's uh, watching the NBA or NFL here, one of the things that I hate most is watching the players constantly scream at the refs to call a foul. He touched me, he held me, he did this, he did that. And it's this almost permanent politicking. Whether an actual foul occurred or not, they know that the door is open if the referees allow it to be open. And then you get nonstop complaints. That's the one thing that I've seen happen with Formula One, as you rightly mentioned, Zach, where you go, we love this. We want to enjoy this. But good Lord, let's not turn every single action into stop, 
review. We're assembling a 20 person panel to find out if on this lap, this corner, this thing happened. You go, look, we're here to watch racing. Let yeah, it play I, out. I, I, I'd like to see the, uh, even though I, it's, it's good to hear the comms, I'd like to see the comms to Mossy uh, removed because there's definitely uh, some stuff going on there for, for television. And I think um, it's not a great place to put uh, Mossy in when you have some of the team principals that are kind of diving in for, for TV. So I, I think uh, as exciting as to hear that comms, I think it's um, altered how you communicate with him so it's made for tv and i i i i'd maybe like to see that go away can we suggest here can we can you pitch this uh this weekend zach some form of automated comms hi you've reached michael massey i'm currently conducting a formula <laughs> one race leave me the heck alone uh let's move First on to England, I called the 24-hour hotline and literally <laughs> the voice was this 24-hour hotline please leave a message I said, what <laughs> i i mean i'm thinking look attach a number to this. Like you have to swipe your credit card if you want to send an SMS or leave a message. Like, look, if it means that much to you, 250 grand. Funnily enough, Michael's no longer being bothered by everyone up at late. Um, let's talk about Formula One expansion in the United States. You already touched on this a bit, the incredible reception at Circuit of the Americas. We've read a million words written over the last couple of weeks or months about drive to survive and its impact uh, globally, but obviously here at home in the US. Share with us what you've seen, Zach, how you've seen this open doors that were never opened before through a streaming platform of all things for the series that launched formally in 1950. It feels like it was massive in previous eras that you and I watched, whether it's Senna and Prost, et cetera, could, couldn't be any bigger absolutely wrong tell us what you've seen from the inside on how drive to survive this has changed it, it's it's been uh, unbelievable i mean we did a show with with amazon called grand prix driver before uh drive yep. to survive that um yeah it was good but it definitely wasn't what uh netflix has be, become uh, i think content was more diverse and more more exciting than kind of our our sorry story for the year even though it was uh you know gave people good insight actually to kind of what was going on um it, it has created more new race fans than anything i've ever seen but the amazing thing it's done is i can't tell you how many times i've heard i never watched formula one to i never miss formula one so this kind of journey of wow you know awareness like all the way to it's it's taken people from I don't know anything about Formula One, just my favorite sport. And that is awesome. It's had a huge impact in North America. I think Formula One is finally caught on in North America. And I think Miami's going to turbocharge that. Um, it's brought a lot of uh, awareness. I'm, you know, uh, I've had uh, uh, two funny stories. I've got, well, two that are humorous. So I'm at the, uh, uh, hotel in, in New York and um, I see these two big tour buses so and these people lined up uh, at the outside of the the hotel so it's clearly there's either a sports team or the Rolling Stones uh, inside and I go upstairs I'm gonna go to dinner with my son get in the elevator 
two guys, you know, 10 foot 10. And uh, so I make a, a joke to him. Hey, you must be here for tennis. It's pretty clear the basketball. <laughs> and they, they have a good laugh thinking, should we just kind of beat this guy up now? And, uh, but they're very nice. And we come out of the elevator. Now I can see the team and all these fans are coming up to him asking for autographs and they're going to go to the bus. Turns out it's the LA Lakers. Um, and as I can start seeing by all the fan jerseys and they won't sign cause they got to get to the bus, but they're, they're being very polite. Just sorry. I'm getting to the bus. So I'm walking out with these two guys, no idea who they are. Uh, I'm not a basketball guy. And it's we your hometown through. team, Brown. You're killing me here. It's your hometown oh, Lakers. A baseball guy. And, uh, so we walk out and the doors open and out pop these, <laughs> these three people from this group of fans, can we get your autograph? And both players immediately go, sorry, we're not signing. No, no, no. Mr. Brown, we love Formula <laughs> One. And these two guys looked at me like, who the hell is this guy? Um, and then, so I didn't go into dinner. And uh, this other guy comes over to me. It looks more like a football player. I don't follow football much either. And uh, says, uh, hey, you, uh, you Zach from McLaren? Said, yes, I'm a huge fan. Takes down his mask and goes, hey, nice to meet you. Gives me a fist bump with this Michael Strahan. And um, that's wow. what Netflix, that's what Drive to Survive, you know, New York didn't know Formula One. And now you got, you know, the Michael Strahan's of the world. And it, it's been, it's been awesome. And people uh, love the sport. I think the sport, to your point, has always been great, but we've never let people in. And now Netflix has let people in so they can see how great this sport is. Stay with this for one more moment, and this is just purely for my own entertainment, Zach. I have all the respect for Christian Horner in the world. Followed him from when he was a young junior open-wheel driver all the way up through F3000. He sure loves sitting in that Netflix chair. He sure loves sitting in for those feature interviews and maybe either sticking body parts in his mouth or stepping on body <laughs> parts, uh, you name it. Toto? A little bit more calculated and reserved with his time sitting in the chair. You don't see an awful lot of Zach Brown uh, in terms of the sit-down feature. Zach, spill all the tea. Here's your knife. Carve up everybody in the paddock. Uh, you're a man who knows your calendar. You're a man who's possessed of himself. You own your own time. I would assume you choose to not be that guy. I know you got opinions. You and I have plenty of conversations where I know exactly what you think. But tell us about the decision to not be uh, the chatty guy sitting in that chair, uh, being a mouthpiece or saying whatever divisive or critical or saucy things, because uh, I know that is that comes from intent. Yeah, I, I think I'd rather be in a place where uh, I'll say something when I have something to say and, and hope that that means it'll be uh, more impactful than uh, just noise. Um, you know, it. Um, I'm I'm there to to race. I want to share McLaren and Formula One with our our fans. Um, you know, on the on the big issues, uh, whether it was uh, Racing Point and you know the brake ducts um, or the cost cap, things of that nature. Um, those are the real issues. Uh, you know, getting on TV and watching myself just kind of talk trash and at times have it go a bit Jerry Springer. Um, that, that's, that's, that's not my style. I'll, I'll leave that. There's other people that like to do that. Uh, so we'll let them do it. 
I think Toto in some form of WWE cage match. <laughs> That's a guy I would fear. Uh, but we'll, we'll he's a big guy. That. He is. He, he's, look, if Schwarzenegger ever needs like a young version of himself cast in a movie back in the day, uh, I think we know who we're going to here. We got a lot of stuff in IndyCar I want to get to. We've got about 15 minutes left or so. So let me ask one more item about Formula One, Zach. Cost cap coming up. Some, some vehicular regulatory changes and whatnot. Tell us about finishing this season, moving into the future. What can Formula One fans look for? What should they expect? What's going to be different about Formula One when we're trying to contain costs? An abstract thing with Formula One. Um, changes to the cars and such. What should fans look for that's going to be different that might be interesting to follow they don't know about? Uh, well, I think the competition is going to be uh, closer. I think anytime you have a regulation change, there's going to be someone who gets it right that you maybe weren't expecting to and someone that gets it wrong that you weren't expecting to. I think the racing will be uh, very competitive. It should be closer the way they've designed the, the cars. Uh, they'll probably be a couple seconds slower, but if I didn't say that and you weren't looking at a stopwatch, you, you, you wouldn't know. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I, I would have liked to have seen the regulations opened up. I think now that you have a cost cap, I, I, I don't think we needed to be as prescriptive with the new technical regulations. If everything's capped, kind of do what you want. You want six wheels, have six wheels. You want a big engine cover, different wings, you know, so everything kind of has to fit into a, a, a square box now. And Did we just break I, news about a McLaren six-wheeler that's coming? <laughs> I'm going to start writing that right now, Brown. It'll I'll be like on. the Williams. There'll be many people don't know there was a Williams six-wheeler with yes. the four wheel at, at the back, but never raced. So I, I think because Formula One in particular is about, um, you know, design and creativity and ingenuity, why then, if you've got kind of a financial govern on the sport, then kind of let them loose and let people try different things. So that's the one thing I'd like to see us do maybe differently the next time around on, on regulations is, is open up the regulations because you, you're going to be governed by how much money you can spend anyways. Shift to IndyCar. And again, I got 50 more questions about F1 to ask, but uh, we'll save that for next year's EPAR Trade Racer Race Industry Week video series. Let's talk about IndyCar. Say that three times quick. Uh, I can barely say what I'm <laughs> saying right now. You know that, Zach. <laughs> so we spoke about Formula One's health and growth. Tell us your thoughts about IndyCar's health and growth. Also, if Zach's speaking to RP Roger Penske, which I know you do, what are the things you're telling RP? Hey, we've made headway in these areas, but boy, my life as a team principal, now McLaren's taken 75% ownership in our McLaren SP. These are the next stage items that would really help me to move my team forward. But health and growth, and then what do we improve next? So uh, let me start with, you know, Roger Penske is my uh, business hero. So talk about the right guy at the right time uh, and his organization coming into by IndyCar and IMS uh, is, is awesome. I don't think we've yet, because he's been living as we all are uh, under COVID since he's acquired it. I don't think we've seen the the best yet. I think he's, you know, not been able to get out of third gear uh, yet. Um, 
great TV contract, great racing, pleasantly surprised, if not shocked, the size of the grid, given what's going on around the world, that the grid just keeps growing. Um, the competition. We're thinking 27-ish cars next season. Could be even 28 if other things happen. It's a big number. I, I was sitting in um, one of the team meetings uh, late last year, and they were talking about uh, issues of maybe not being able to accommodate all the cars uh, at some of these smaller tracks. I mean, that's that's impressive. Um, I think you've got uh, multiple teams that can win the championship and, and drivers. So I think the on-track product is great. Um, I, I'd like to see some new cars come out here shortly. I know we're going to get some new, you know, power units in, in hybrid, but, you know, I think maybe the, the chassis is getting a little bit long in the, in the tooth. I know there's an economic consequence uh, to that. So, you know, I don't think that's critical, but, you know, when I was growing up watching IndyCar, especially because there was a little bit of diversity, it kind of wasn't Formula One, but there was the Marks, there was the Lola, there was the True Sports, there was the Galmer. I realized that's probably not economically feasible to do that anymore, but I'd like to actually see that vetted out. And, and, and is it possible? Can we get back there where there's a little bit of um, diversity on, on, on the grid? Um, As a great avid vintage racer, and avid folks know you and I both love vintage racing, I always trot this stat out. The DW12, the current IndyCar chassis, was introduced in 2012. Ten years is the minimum time window for most vintage racing series. Your car must be at minimum ten years since its last uh, competitive debut, or at least be ten years old. The current IndyCar Act is now eligible as we move into the new year. Will be eligible, if not eligible right now, for vintage racing. Like it truly today's IndyCar. Think of vintage racing. I don't want to quote and race for saying Zach says we're racing vintage Indy cars. Let me type <laughs> that right now. Let me type that right now. Um, no, I, you know, I mean, the good news is they, they've updated the body kit. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think with IndyCar, it's doing so much right. Now it's about fine tuning, not wholesale changes. I think going to Detroit downtown is going to be awesome. I think the Nashville race was awesome. Yes, it needs the the track, you know, modified, too many red flags, things of that nature. But, you know, that's first year kinks, the concept of the Nashville race, the iconic bridge, you know, you knew the race was in town. It had a real uh, feel to it. So I think the calendar's great. I think the on-track competition's great. The budget is awesome. I think, I think the sport can afford a little bit of more spend to maybe get some of that technology a little bit more uh, current. I, I know we all want to be cost conscious. I very much want to be cost conscious, but I, I think the uh, spend to sponsor value is is the right right balance. Mm. Um, and you know, it's it's, it's damn tough racing. Um, so I, I I I like the direction it's going. I think we just need to let Roger kind of spread his wings a, a little bit and, and kind of get on the backside of uh, a COVID and, and be able to uh, work his, work his magic. I, he's open to every idea. 
Um, he ran some past me the other day that he said he didn't want to read about. So I'll keep those to myself. But, you know, he's, he's not standing still. He's constantly, what can he do to improve the sport? This is not meant to be a criticism of Penske Entertainment, RP or anyone. This is just trying to recognize what I've seen and have this conversation with many. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Roger, successful businessman, uh, incredible success. You and I growing up in America, though, how many Penske, you name it, commercials did we see, though? How much true hardcore marketing was a part of building the Penske empire? Probably have to say not a lot. Not saying that marketing is magically what has made Formula One as popular as ever, but there has been a huge investment on that side mostly on the digital side, social media side, Netflix, as we said, Drive to Survive has been a game changer for F1. If there's a bit of a, a hole to fill or, or an expansion to be made staff-wise, I'd love to get your thoughts, Zach, as someone who's done just marketing for so many years. Is this maybe the one last area you would look at and say, boy, if IndyCar is able to double or triple its staff, uh, hire an outside firm, whatever it is, We've seen F1 set the blueprint for marketing and engaging the world. It's one area where I think we're safe in saying that IndyCar definitely has some, some yardage to gain. What recommendations do you make there? Because we all want to see IndyCar as popular as it can be. It's still a little bit too much like that uh, favorite you know, uh, band you see at the small, small dive instead of the, uh, the full-size stadium. How do we bring it forward through marketing and engagement? I think you're right. I think it's through through social um, and, and digital applications. I think some of the uh, older events can maybe use a little bit of a, a refresh to the uh, at atmosphere. Uh, Long Beach is an iconic historic race, but I think that could use uh, some investment to get kind of the after hours activities, uh, you know, going. Um, I think exposing the drivers more because it's a great group of drivers and that's what's made drive to survive. So uh, great is the personalities. It's actually less about the racing. So IndyCar's got a great racing product and great personalities that I think need to be uh, shown outside of the, the race broadcast, right? That's what, what formula one has done. And to do that more, through their uh, partners. Um, but again, I, I think these things are, are coming. I spent a lot of time with Greg Penske. Uh, Roger's got a great organization uh, around him and he you know, has done an unbelievable job building the Penske empire um, by using his racing team and building his racing team with the Penske empire. So he, he knows what he's doing here. Um, and, but yeah, I also think it would be good to set aside some some marketing budget, uh, and then also some, some more street races, you know, the, the Denver's of the world, some of these markets that uh, create that kind of downtown uh, buzz. That's one of the reasons why I think Nashville was so successful. One or two more questions before we say farewell, Zach. Spoke yesterday with you, your friend and business partner, Michael Andretti, on the topic of IndyCar teams and valuation. So having tried to acquire a Formula One team, we know that any Formula One team is a very valuable asset. You're discussing IndyCar, one of the 
desires I've heard from a growing number of team owners is I've built this thing. I've got this big building and cars and transporters and people. What is it worth? I don't know. I'd like it to be worth something. I'd like it to be a commodity folks sought after or even new owners knew, hey, maybe you buy into a franchise or something. We both know that Cart once had a franchise system. Michael liked the idea of something like that. Do you have any ideas there? Because now with majority ownership in Aaron McLaren SP, I'm sure you would love to be able to say, hi, anyone, you want to be part of this? This is what it might cost. Or at least we could say this is what it costs to get in. You see value there? What, what would you recommend? Yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, Formula One has a, a bit of a franchise system, no more than 12 teams. There's 10 there. And, and now there's a big price tag. If you want to join the series, it's going to cost you a couple hundred million before you've even printed a, a business card. So that has automatically made an existing team 200 plus. Uh, I think you kind of have that a little bit with the leader circle money with kind of locking in, you know, that kind of million bucks per car. Um, but that's not a significant amount of money. I think if you reduce the grid, you know, do we really need 28 cars? What you really need is 22. I think it's kind of the magic number, great cars. So if, if you kind of maybe limited it to 22, then you've got those six that are, you know, outside looking in, they're going to either have to kind of write a check and that starts to drive up franchise value or, you know, spend more to kick someone else out. It's no different than in the premier league. You've got the two different uh, leagues. And if you're a premier league or you get demoted uh, is a substantial value difference. I wouldn't mind um, the teams having a, a piece of the league. I'm sure Roger would have something to say about that, but I'm not suggesting that the team should get that for free of charge. But if there was a way for uh, the teams to uh, have a piece, whatever that may look like, you know, the Liberty once offered all the teams uh, stock when they came in. I don't think a single team uh, took them up on it. And we all would have tripled our, our money. So shame on us. Mm. Um, so, you know, always having skin in the game then gets you as a team to maybe think not just about yourself, but what's good for the league, because what's good for the league is therefore then good for your, uh, your, your racing team. So uh, I, I've also, you know, one of the things I've suggested to uh, Formula One, I'd love to see the teams own an event together and with that so maybe we waive our what rights fee um we co-promote an event we all get a corner for branding for our sponsors and then would that get us to change our behaviors maybe have a you know open up the garage maybe get our drivers you know out a little early if we actually had skin in the game for the race itself would we act differently in a more positive, open manner. So I think anytime you can get alignment between, you know, leagues, tracks, broadcasters, race teams, you, you end up working more together and, and growing the, the, the pie. If we're going to renovate your house, how much time and effort are we going to put in compared to if you let us own one of the rooms or one of the floors of the house, all of a sudden we're actually uh, renovating something that, that definitely has our, our own interest in place. Let's close on this, look into the future a little bit, Zach. 
So in 2012, we had a brand new IndyCar formula, new chassis we discussed, three engine partners, Chevy, Honda, and Lotus, while Lotus didn't exactly work out. Very interesting in those early years in terms of power and acquisition and alignment. Chip Ganassi Racing starting out with Honda, then left for Chevy. Michael Andretti and Dreddy Autosport, a Chevy team, then went to Honda. We've had folks move all around to both Chevy and Honda. Teams have been prized assets to help try and win championships. We're hoping we're going to have a third manufacturer coming in here, not next, uh, not for 2023 necessarily with the new engine formula, but maybe 24, 25. It's been a while, Zach, since there's kind of been who's the most attractive, who might leave, who could go to that third. Tell me about your views on that. Uh, and I'm not saying McLaren uh, or McLaren SP would leave Chevy, but just saying that dynamic is likely coming to the paddock. How do you manage that now before we even have a confirmed manufacturer? Do you, know, do you think managers, owners and whatnot are jockeying to try and at least get a feel for where the, uh, the market might lie, where their interest might be? Interesting times ahead. Yeah, I think it would be great to see another manufacturer come in. I generally think, you know, as long as they're quality, um, which, of course, uh, Toyota is, you know, more the more the merrier. And I think it will create, you know, a, it'll bring marketing. You know, the, the OEMs will bring a lot of resource, promote the sport, sponsor events, things of that nature. I think it creates uh, more competitive tension. I think it. Uh, builds value for the for the racing team. So um, I see it only as upside uh, having more uh, more competition in the sport. And whether I'm just romantic about uh, things in the past, but if you kind of take a snapshot of where IndyCar was in 93, 94, before the split, huge grids, great drivers, two, three, four chassis, two, three engine manufacturers, kind of the same amount of races and the same blender races as you have today. So it worked um, really well then. And I think sometimes looking back in history um, is a great way to learn about what you should do in the future. And then of course, modernize it. Um, so uh, I, I think more competition. Uh, I know Ferrari looked at it uh, very closely during the, the, the uh, budget cap discussions, they, of course, kind of built an IndyCar. It was before my time. I think it was in the 80s. where 86. they were. Yep. 86. I've actually, uh, I've seen the car. Um, and also what I didn't know until I visited uh, Lotus, and you, I'm sure you'll know this, but I didn't know this. Um, Lotus built a Formula One car in, I also think. IndyCar. Yeah. Um, so. You know, see more chassis manufacturers, see a Ferrari, a Toyota, you name them, looking at the sport. I think that's a good thing. Yeah, we, we've certainly been hoping for Toyota. Uh, wrote about that uh, not so long ago that they're known to be looking in. Granted, I've probably lost track, Zach, of how many looking in stories I've written on the subject that doesn't have the and they sign. So we hope to Toyota coming in would be amazing, but they are not the only ones that are talking to IndyCar. But nonetheless, we have positive things to talk about, brother. And I love the fact that growth uh, dynamic series, whether it's Formula One or IndyCar, we didn't even get to extreme e-sports cars, all the various other things that you uh, on an individual level with United Auto Sports and McLaren involved in. But 
do appreciate you taking some time here with the uh, Racer and E-Park Trade Race Industry Week 2021. And no, I can't say that three times in a row. <laughs> yeah, impressed you did it twice. <laughs> thank you, brother. Well, thank you so much, Zach. What a great session. Do you have another hour? You can stay with us. I love talking motor racing. As Marshall <laughs> said, we didn't even get to how cool WEC and IMSA are going to be and Extreme E. So there's, uh, there's lots to look forward to. I, I, I know uh, you said in your previous session, you know, what's the future of motorsports look like? And while, uh, you know, all businesses and sports have their challenges, I'm very uh, bullish across the platform of different racing activities that, uh, you know, motor racing and people in motor racing have a great way of tackling uh, challenges. It's kind of what motivates us. So I'm, uh, I'm very bullish for our future. Thank you. Thank you very much. We are a huge fan of you, Zach. Uh, we met over 10 or 15 years ago, you know, with the PRI days. And thank you. Uh, everything you do, I mean, you do it so magnificently. So thank you very, very much for being with us and sharing your passion with us this morning. concept for e-part trade is basically, in my opinion, there's a big hole in the internet. So the internet started many years ago, but there's never been an online business community for racers on the World Wide Web. The need for e-part trade is actually quite obvious. Basically, people in the business of auto racing need a place online to hang out and get their problems solved. It's extremely simple for a buyer or for a supplier to interact on the platform. The first thing you need to do is sign in, which is free. And the second thing is when you see a product that you're interested in, all you need to do is click on request more information. If it's a company, you click on request more information. And then from there, it is forwarded directly to the buyer or to the supplier. You can go to epartrade.com, you become part of a community of businesses in racing, and it makes uh, sourcing products much easier than just on the internet or using Google. At epartrade, there is no e-commerce. It's literally a connection just like at a trade show. So now, any time of the year, a buyer could reach out to a supplier through an email. More than that, it's a place to go just to keep current every day. So it's a good place to start your workday in your racing business or in your offices of your professional race team. And you know you're current when it comes to new technology, industry news, technical papers, technical videos, all that and more. We're not looking for a million hits per day. All we want is people who are really the volume buyers of racing products in the racing industry to be part of the little world of EPAR trade. We have racing businesses participating from around the world. So you get suppliers from around the world, you get buyers from around the world. EPAR Trade really eliminates having to travel, closing down your shop. Now you have a place to showcase globally your racing product and technology. There are two types of people, racers and everyone else. Racer Magazine is for those who believe that racing is a way of life. Racer embodies the excellence that defines a sport driven by passion, courage, and ingenuity. Get one year of both Racer's print and digital edition for only $39 with instant access to our entire digital issue archive. Subscribe now at info.racer.com.